This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. Remember to visit MeUndies.com slash Cape Up to get 20% off the best and softest underwear and socks you'll ever own. Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Y'all know I've been trying to understand white working class voters and their support of Donald Trump. So this week, I've brought in Joan Williams, author of White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. We get into the role of the economy and the family, and she doesn't shy away from the role of racism, but there's a surprising twist in her outlook. There is a really poisonous dynamic in this country between white people. Listen to what else Joan Williams has to say right now. Joan Williams, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so in your book, White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America, you have this line in the book, which is a great setup for this entire conversation. You write, one of the goals of this book is to help broaden the conversation of identity to more deftly include class. Expand on that. Well, I've worked on chiefly on gender and race for probably 30 years. And I think that in the United States, we have talked a lot about gender and race. Whether we've done anything about gender and race is kind of a different issue, not our topic today. But we have talked a lot less about social class. And typically, when my crowd talks about social class, they assume you're talking about the poor, which is not talking about social class. That's talking about the poor. And class is uh, a very important vector of social inequality. And class differences are expressed through cultural differences, and those have been playing a profound role in American politics for the last 40 years. Well, you just said a moment ago, my crowd. Define my crowd. I have, I am just a garden-variety San Francisco liberal. <laughs> very boring. Oh, there's nothing boring about that. Okay, so I'm glad you said a moment ago that there are a lot of markers of class. And you have another in your book, you write, remember, class isn't just about money. Everything we do is class marked. Mm -hmm. Explain that. Well, you know, when I was growing up in the 1950s, that wasn't the case. I mean, my mom shopped at Safeway and we we shopped at Sears and so did lots of middle class people. We were quite elite. But now everything is class differentiated. And I think of coffee is easy to explain. I mean, my, my relatives who come from the kind of middle America drink Dunkin' Donuts, that's a good cup of coffee. And um, my crowd in San Francisco, we wouldn't be caught dead in Starbucks because that's not good enough cup of coffee. Wait, what? Starbucks isn't... Are you kidding? Yeah, no. Starbucks isn't... No, 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 no. Oh, wow. No, and you don't even... You can't even go to Pete's or Phil's, which are much... Because they're... You have to go to your local pour-over with all artisanal coffee and... It's um, the, so the, the, the different, I mean, when I was growing up, there were two kinds of coffee, yeah, burnt right, and decent. Right, yeah. That was it. Um, but That's now, why my mother-in-law likes it, but yeah. she likes it like just brown water. Yeah, yeah. I like my coffee with, a, with some bite. Yeah, yeah. Well, now the, actually the kids like the light coffee. So we, I mean, coffee is, uh, we use these things to kind of establish identity markers, But the class structure of coffee is just one example. I mean, the more important examples 
are in what I call the professional managerial elite, the PME, which is basically the top like 17% of Americans. Uh, our identities and our values are focused around self-development and sophistication. Self-development, it begins really early with the way we raise kids with this incredible performance pressure where we're discovering every little micro-talent yesterday and developing it tomorrow. Right. Um, and that kind of devotion to self-development and devotion to personal achievement carries over into our careers where we're expected to be absolutely devoted to work and put work in front of everything, certainly family and probably everything else. And then we display our human capital through sophisticated tastes in coffee and artisanal everything from spiritualities to, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. That is life in one specific class location in the United States is incredibly different from the group who is being, being called the white working class, but who in fact are just middle Americans, the middle 53%. Their lives are organized around self-discipline, the kinds of self-discipline you need to get you up and at a not very fulfilling, not very well-paid job every day for 40 years straight. And they hold in high value the institutions that are designed to help with self-discipline, so the military, religion, traditional families. And their dispositions are very different. They have, while we, we value the edgy they value the tried and true. There's just a, a class culture gap that exists in the United States. It's really gotten much bigger um, throughout the course of my life, and it's really determining the tenor uh, and the direction of American politics. You know, you have a chart here. On, on, for those of you following along, on page 18, um, <laughs> there's a chart here, Dimensions of Morality Most Salient to White and Black Workers and to Professionals and, man and Managers. And this, I hope, will get us into, like, the crux of this discussion, and that is the focus on the white working class. And the thing that jumped out at me as I was reading this is that if working class whites and working class blacks both list the same traits they admire in others, why then did they split on their support of Donald Trump for president? Um, because blacks have an understanding of sto social inequality in the United States and whites of whatever class do not. Also, you didn't have to read very deeply into Trump's support and Trump's language to find coded racism, and black voters were smart enough to see that. White working class people are whites, and like whites in the United States, they don't have a deeply structural understanding of social inequality. But I think that one of the things that that chart shows is that a lot of the values that the white working class holds dear, self-discipline, the idea of men being a provider role, those are shared by all non-elites. Mm -hmm. They're shared by people of color as well as white working class people. And they're, many of them are also shared by poor folks, no matter what race. Mm -hmm. There's one big difference, and that has to do with attitudes towards the poor. African Americans generally have very much of a there but for the grace of God go I attitude. As you describe it as a, a very a French way They're of actually more at like it. the French right. in, in their attitudes towards government and social solidarity than they are like white Americans. White working class Americans have a very judgmental attitude towards poor, the poor. Their attitude is uh, I get up every day, I work hard at this unrelenting job, 
And I don't understand why the government and the liberals only seem to care about these poor people who don't keep their noses clean the way I do keep my nose clean. And so they have a very judgmental attitude towards the poor, which Republicans over the past decades have very deftly used to undermine support for the government in general. So Americans now, there's really low support and belief uh, in the efficacy of government in general. Americans hate government, although, by the way, they love a lot of government programs. Right, right. They love their government, however government is defined for them. But this judgmental view towards the poor, I mean, poor equals race or equals black or brown people, people who are are seen as undeserving. No, especially given the way, as you said before, Republicans have exploited those tensions and exploited that view. No? Yeah, I mean, I think race is in there. When you're talking about the United States, it usually is in there. <laughs> uh, far be it for me to deny that. But that's not all there is because they also, I mean, all you have to do is read something like Hillbilly Elegy and he expresses uh, this very sharply judgmental attitude towards poor whites as mm-hmm. well as poor blacks. He actually, I don't know if he talks about poor blacks, but he definitely does talk about his neighbors who are poor and, and in a very judgmental way. Yeah. Well, one of our past guests on the podcast, it might have been Justin Guest, who said that working class whites, they're the like the last group of people who it's okay to say negative, derogatory, uncompassionate yeah. things about. Yeah, when we call them rednecks with plumber's butt in flyover states. And then they get offended. Gee, why would that be? Well, I want to Because stick... we're insulting them. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to stick on, on, on the racism piece for a little bit. You write, we won't know how much racism falls away until we stop in, insulting working class whites and using all that language that you just said now. And when I, when I read that and when I read a lot of these things about the white working class and why they voted the way they did and, and what they're thinking, what they're feeling, I, I maybe it's because I'm African-American – I'm looking at that and thinking that racism isn't just a part of it, that it, it is a big part of all of this. Disabuse me of that if you think I'm wrong. Well, I mean, first of all, you had, I can't remember now, but, but about 12 million people voted for Barack Obama and then for Trump. Mm-hmm. So either they had a religious conversion or racism isn't all there is to, to say about that. The other thing is that In this last election, Democrats also lost union members for the first time. I mean, people were really voting by class. Now, I agree with you. There's this there's this race, uh, race thing on top because black working class Americans were not voting for Trump. Right. Totally get you there. But my point is that white working class Americans were. That is what swung the election in those key Rust Belt states. And we have to begin to understand why these people thought that was the best way to vote for them. Trump said to them, you're the forgotten people. And I think they feel like they're forgotten people because we forgot them. I think that's, I think they were very accurate. I think people hadn't been talking about good jobs for non-college grads. Now, you can come back and say, well, compared to whom? Compared to people of color? 
And I just, I don't think this is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell you, I've worked on race for most of my life. And I have done, I like to think of work that in a new way documents the racism that, for example, that is encountered in professional workplaces. I mean, I've developed an instrument to measure that. So Mm -hmm. it's not that I'm not, I'm trying to deny the existence of race. Right. And in fact, you write in the book that, um, and you even mentioned earlier that, you know, racism cuts across all strata. There's enough uh, blame um, for racism to go around. Right, whether it's working class or yeah. or, the, or white professional Absolutely. elites, and you yeah. go into examples yeah. uh, of each. Yeah, I mean, we don't, the point is refusing to listen to someone's legitimate economic concerns because of racism. Uh, I mean, I find it particularly off-putting when elite whites refuse to lo- listen to the legitimate ec- economic concerns of non-elites, white, non-elite whites because those other whites are racist because I'm one of the people who have documented, well, they probably are, but you are too. So <laughs> let's just, uh, let's, let's band together on racism. I think that it's very important for people to say racism is just not someplace I go. On the other hand, I give you an example from the immigration debate. Um, in uh, when there's a very well-known study, actually that chart comes from that study of of white of, of white and black working class men in the 19. Uh, it was published in like in the early 2000s, but it was in the 1990s. In the 1990s, that author Michelle Lamont did not find um, strong boundaries and judgmentalism against immigrants. She found a lot of admiration for immigrants on the grounds that they were hardworking just like us. So what's happened in the meantime? I think what has happened is that that the Republicans have given a very compelling story for what happened to jobs. Number one, trade treaties. They got exported overseas. Number two, immigrants. For the jobs that stayed here, they pay less. That's because the immigrants are driving down wages. Now, I don't believe that that's the reason. In fact, I think it's the, the runaway capitalism. I mean, I'm a capitalist, but I'm not. I, what we're, talk, we're talking about here is not right. just capitalism. If American workers had the same proportion of productivity gains today that they did in 1970, their wages would be twice what they are today. That's the problem. Um, But if you don't address that problem, then one of the things that happens in the United States is is it turns into racial scapegoating. And I think when people are engaged in racial scapegoating, they have a grievance and they're engaged in racial scapegoating, you can do a couple things. You can say, you know what, you're being a jerk, you're you're, um, blaming the wrong person. Or you can say, you know what, I hear you have a grievance. This is your grievance. It's an economic grievance. I'm going to address that grievance. And, by the way, I don't. racism is not someplace I go. I think that the second strategy is going to be a lot more effective than the first. This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. MeUndies will be the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. With tons of styles and patterns to choose from for both men and ladies, MeUndies will have the perfect fit for any personality. And for a limited time only, check out MeUndies' first ever glow-in-the-dark print, Lights Out. To get 20% off the best and softest underwear and socks you will ever own, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash up. That's MeUndies.com slash up. 
what do you do then when you're talking to someone and they their economic message is there? Like, I don't have a job. My family doesn't have a job. Our, our town and our economy is completely depressed. Nothing's happening. And it's because of those immigrants or it's because of those Mexicans or it's because of those fill-in-the-blank person, usually black or brown, who's taking something away from them. How then do you have the economic discussion when you need to have both the economic discussion and the, you know, it's not them? Like, how do you disabuse them of the, the, the racism that is grounding what they're talking about? I mean, I think you have the economic discussion and say, you know, what we need now is two-thirds of Americans do not have college degrees. They feel forgotten. They feel forgotten because we forgot them. We're going to stop forgetting them. We're going to uh, get community colleges together with employers to develop not some fancy four-year degree, but a certificate program that will give you the skills you need for a local job in your area. Is that of interest to you? Right now, the only discussion about jobs is anti-trade treaties and anti-immigrants. We need a real discussion about jobs. That Now, the discussion about jobs is tax cuts. And I can't fathom why Democrats aren't saying, you know, that's not a jobs program. That's a hope. That's a hope that if you give really rich people lots more money, they won't just pass it on to their kids, which is what parents typically do. Mm -hmm. And that they'll create jobs for you, and they'll create jobs that are not the kind of dead-end muck jobs that have brought us to this past. We have a real jobs program, and this is what it is. So I also think, you know, if when you have stuff like Charlottesville, I mean, we're going to be talking about racism, right? I mean, we're talking about racism. We're talking about right white supremacy and, and anti. I mean, I'm Jewish. So like, that's no fun. And, and, and this is but this is all in the swirl. I mean, the thing about then candidate Donald Trump's campaign and now his presidency is that he's uncorked the bottle. And the genie's out, the poison's out, the toothpaste's out of the tube, whatever metaphor analogy you want to use. And one, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to put that back in, put that back in the bottle. But at the same time that we have to address the issues of concern to the forgotten, we have to also address the racism and xenophobia and misogyny that is all tied up in this. And, and I'm going to ask you the question that I asked Justin Guest when we were talking about this, um, because in reading his book, the question came up, and in reading your book, it comes up, and that is, what responsibility does the white, do you think, the white working class has in adapting to the already changing country, to my mind, it seems like everything, everything that I've read, not just, not just your book, but it's a lot of understand the working class. We have to understand them. But no one, I haven't seen anyone talk about their responsibility once we've understood and we're all on the same page, their responsibility in looking at um, people who are different from them with the dignity and respect that, they're de- that they are demanding? Um, I think the best, I think we definitely need to insist that everybody treat everybody with dignity and respect, and certainly not because they're um, n- not lack of dignity because of race. I totally, totally get you there. But I think one of the things that 
is important to understand is that there is a really poisonous dynamic in this country between white people and that white people who are not privileged feel belittled, they feel stereotyped, they feel openly ridiculed, and they are really, really angry because of what elite white people are doing to them. Now, because of this poisonous dynamic among white people, guess who's paying the price? You got to fix the dynamic among white people. And the way to fix the dynamic of white, uh, among white people is to stop the indignity, which is not going to be easy. But just saying, you guys are all racist, classist, misogynist, and, t- and stupid, by the way, that's actually not helping people of color. That's hurting people of color because that is feeding this poisonous dynamic among white people. Now, if you say to these white folks who are directing their anger at, I mean, it ain't my problem. It ain't your problem. And we are getting blamed. Totally get that. My interest, though, is in not in figuring out who to blame more effectively, but in turning around the dynamic. If you want to turn that around that dynamic, you need to address people's dignity issues and you need to address their economic issues at the same time as you say, you know, racism is just not someplace we as Americans go. There's one other thought about immigration I wanted to share, and I've been thinking a lot about this since I wrote the book. If you think about um, among, again, my crowd, um, there's this outpouring of empathy towards immigrants. And we basically have immigrants in sort of a very empathetic human rights frame. At the same time, as among working-class whites, they're racist, stupid, sexist, misogynistic, and did, did I mention stupid? So you have those stereotypes, and you have them in kind of a neoliberal, the racist to the swift, and I guess you're not it since you n- never graduated. And it's this divergence of frames that is creating resentment by these working-class whites of immigrants. And, you know, the idea of the way to control working-class whites um, is to deflect their anger onto immigrants or onto blacks or other people of color. This has been going on. This is a, this is a glorious American tradition. I was going to say, it's an, it's yes, been going on like, an wow. American yeah, we, we've been going. This has been happening since the 17th century. But, I mean, the epigram to my, to my book is from Martin Luther King, who well understood this and said, you know, equality means dignity, and dignity means a paycheck that lasts through the week. He was trying to very self-consciously and in a sophisticated way avoid pitting working-class blacks and working-class whites. Why aren't we smart enough to do that? Because that's that, the challenge. And that, and that union was there early, early on, and um, political forces understood. That's when he got murdered. Uh, well, I'm going way, way back, because yeah. um, as you, you write in your book, I, I, I didn't, of all the things I wrote down and, and starred, I don't, I don't have it pulled out, but you have mm-hmm. the thing in here about how in post-slavery time, yeah. you had yeah. freed blacks and poor... White trash, and quote. poor agrarian and Are whites these people being together. insulted? <laughs> Gee, they're being called trash. Guess they're being insulted. But you're right. And there was a very self-conscious strategy on the part of planters after the Civil War to drive a wedge between poor whites and poor blacks. And it's called the wages of whiteness of like, well, you may be white trash and, and, and dirt poor, you know, just those insults, um, but at least you're not black. 
And and I don't think that that was the word that was used. I just don't to think make that just to make yeah. the distinction very clear. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's interesting that I won't use that w- insulting word right. for blacks, and I do use white trash, and people use it all the time. Um, you know, I, I think the solution is to is to round up rather than round down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So l- let's go to go back to dignity because you said it many times, mm-hmm. um, and it is a good segue into talking further, get, going deeper into trying to understand the white working class as you write about them here. Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, when we interviewed him back in January, trying to understand how did Donald Trump get elected? And he zeroed in on that word, dignity. And you write in terms of white working class, for most, the dignity work affords is from what it allows you to buy and whom it allows you to support, not from the job itself. And that gets back to what you were talking about earlier about how the professional managerial elite, the PMEs, they're all about the job. They're all about the social connections. Their their value and worth comes from their work. Whereas for white working class, their value and worth comes from who they are as a person. Yeah. And family is very important and their standing in the community is important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's the, the PME, the professional managerial elite, who's the odd man out here because it's most Americans, regardless of color, race, creed, who are non-elite, whether they're middle class or whether they're poor, they think the elite is a, bit, a little nuts about work. They think that <laughs> the, uh, I mean, we, we meet each other and go, we go, what do you do? And that is a signal of your identity is your job. You have no identity other than your job. And I mean, we're one of the only civilizations that's ever lived where the elite works more than non-elite. That's because our identities are so completely framed around what's called work devotion, that we put work before family and every everyone else. I mean, and this is one of the ways in this class culture gap, very often the assumption is that elites, if you know, non-elite should kind of get with it and be like the elite. I think in a lot of ways, elites should get with it and get their head screwed on straight in a way that non-elites of whatever color do because the the idea that family comes first is is a very strong white working class saying but you know what african americans would agree mm-hmm. non-elite african americans would agree and that's just one of the many ways in which the traditional values that are held by non-elites black and white are very different from the kind of edgy, Mm -hmm. artisanal um, values of the likes of us. Just that word alone, artisanal, is just screaming elitist. But I want to read something from your book on this point about dignity and the what do you do question. You write, I remember attending my class migrant husband's high school reunion when, with a regrettable lack of code switching, he posed the what do you do question to a classmate. The classmate's face got very red as he came right up into Jim's face and hissed, I sell toilets. That says it all. You know, um, I sell toilets, but that's not who I am. Who I am is defined by the honor that I'm held in a small circle. It's called a clique network of people, family, neighbors, close friends. That's where... That's where all non-elites spend their entire lives. Um, It's only the professional managerial elites 
We go to college. We meet people throughout the... We have a national or a global network. I mean, I was just living in the Netherlands, you know, and like, well, hello, my name is Joan Williams. I'm a law professor. Everybody wants to talk to me. I'm a law professor at the ma- in one of the major universities. Um, it's not the same if you sell toilets. And I think that's there's a very important political and economic message there, which is this: this is there's a, a big mystery that's not a mystery about why these people don't just leave. I was going to gonna find ask you that question jobs. because this, why yeah. don't they just leave? Yeah. Well, number one, their their social honor is very local, unlike ours. Um, number two, they have to find not only one better job; they have to find two better jobs, because these are all two-parent families. There is a much higher rate of stay-at-home motherhood among the poor than there is among the middle class in this country. And number three, what is number three? We all have these Ted Cruz, these, uh, what's his name? Mind freezes? Yeah, Uh, Rick Perry, the Rick Rick, Rick Rick Perry Perry moment. (laughs) Rick Perry moments. Oops. Um, anyway, there's a, there's a third reason, believe me, take it, take it, take it on, take it on faith. Oh, I know. Here's the third reason. The third reason is that among non-elites, and again, this is regardless of race, among the professional managerial elite, our relationships with our adult, uh, with our children are typically purely emotional, you know, and often telephonic. Um, but among all non-elites, the adult children remain within the family network throughout their lives and take care of grandma, driver to the um, driver to the doctor's appointments. Often, grandma is taking care of the kids. So, not only um, do you need to find two better jobs, you need to find two jobs that are so much better that now that you have to pay for childcare. You're still better off. That's a very, very tall order. These people what, uh, have what is called in acad- academia the two-body problem. <laughs> sorry, I just had a brain freeze. Now, we're, now I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a catching. Sorry about that. Sorry. Wait, no, I know where I want to go. I just didn't know. Like, ah, I just froze. I literally just froze. I'm sorry. Okay. So, Joan, you've got to explain to the audience. It's here in, it's here in your book. And the the chapter question, why does the working class resent professionals but admire the rich? It gets to the question of how is it that the working class voted for someone like Donald Trump? The working class admires the rich because that's what they want to be. And they're just about to be that tomorrow, by the way, because it's the land of opportunity. The working class are order takers. Right? They're ordered around their whole lives. Their aspiration is to be order givers, to own their own small business. And they have a lot of admiration for people who are rich because that's what they want to be, just the way I am today, just with more money. On the other hand, the working class resents professionals. And this is there's not a deep literature on this, but this is robust among whites, and I'm not sure about blacks. But among whites, there's this really robust resentment of professionals because, for example, my supervisor, this is one quote, is some college kid who doesn't know crap about my job but is perfectly willing to tell me how to do it. They feel like they're ordered around by people who are more elite and half as smart as they all the time. And they feel that their kids' teachers condescend to them and scold them about not reading enough to their kids and assume their kids are stupid. And there's robust evidence that white working class people are assumed to be stupid, um, just the way that people of color are assumed to be stupid. Mm -hmm. Very similar, what I call prove-it-again effect. 
They feel that they're bossed around by bureaucrats. A lot of the resentment against government comes from this sense of people who are half as smart as, smart as me are ordering me around and ripping me off all the time. Now, you know, one of the things that Democrats could have pointed out is that when Trump was a real estate magnet, he hired these blue-collar guys and he stiffed them. Why we didn't, as a Democrat, we didn't talk about that. Well, I, I'm going to say it was talked about. The only problem is that the subject of, of that conversation did all sorts of stuff that just ate up all the airtime, all the conversation. But you, you write in the book something that illustrates everything that you were just saying perfectly. Most working class people have little contact with the truly rich outside the apprentice or lifestyles of the rich and famous, but they suffer class affronts from professionals every day. I mean, that line right there crystallizes it it clearly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, when you walk in and you don't know the the building engineer and just look right through him, that's, that doesn't feel good. And so to, to close out, just define, just sort of to wrap everything up, because we've been talking about these two things, but the difference between class cluelessness and class callousness. Class cluelessness is that the professional managerial elite um, just thinks that blue-collar people are kind of dim-witted and probably racist, sexist, and misogynist on the side. Uh, well, that actually is probably class um, callousness. Callousness. Yeah. Um, class cluelessness is that the professional managerial elite doesn't understand that people's truths stem from their lives. And for us, it makes perfect sense to take a lot of risks because we have a big safety net. We have a huge amount of human capital that is makes sense for us to move across the country, makes sense for, you know, the joke of like, what do you call a Jew in California, a Buddhist? It makes sense for us to make up our, you know, artisanal spirituality. That all makes sense for us. None of that makes sense for people who didn't, didn't go to college, have stayed close to home are trying very hard to achieve a stable life, are extremely proud when they've been able to do that, value security, the tried and true. And that's the class culture gap. And, you know, I don't think either one of those ways of life is better than the other. I think both of them just have an internal logic. And if that you don't share that internal logic because... The sky's always been the limit for you, and you can't understand why someone can believe in something as ignorant as traditional religion. I would just ask you, isn't that a failure of imagination? For someone who has gone to college, you have to understand what lives look like for people who have been brought up for blue and pink collar jobs and are very happy if they can maintain a stable family life. Joan Williams, Distinguished Professor of Law and Hastings Foundation Chair at the University of California Hastings College of Law and author of White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
guys, it's Allison Michaels, host of the Can He Do That podcast, and we have some exciting news. We'll be hosting a live taping of the podcast at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. That's one year after Donald Trump's historic election. That night, we'll talk to legendary reporter Bob Woodward, 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold, and national political correspondent Karen Tumulty about the moments that made you ask, can he do that? Get your tickets at LiveNation.com. See you there. The Washington 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 Post. Post.